And uh, after about an eight or nine week delay because of an uninvited guest named Harvey that we had one Sunday morning, we are picking up the series called Homegrown that we've been waiting and exciting to do for weeks. And this series is all about growing stronger families. We, we are a church that loves family, wants to help all of us grow stronger families in whatever family we find ourselves in. And, uh, and the way this is going to work for the next few weeks is um, we are going to uh, basically ask some real-life questions that, 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 that happen in families, that happen in parenting, like uh, how do I fight entitlement in my children? Or, uh, like, how do I know if I'm spoiling my kids? Or the one for this morning is, what do I do when I want to wrap my hands around my children's necks and strangle them, right? That's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to take these questions and, uh, and, and, and then open up the scripture and, and see what kind of, of wisdom and, and guidance and advice God's word would have for us as we try to navigate uh, family life. And, and, and what my hope is that for all of us, and, and I really do mean all of us, I, I, this isn't a series just for people with kids or with young kids. Uh, I think we all are parts of different kinds of families and the principles and things that we're going to talk about here are relevant to us no matter what kind of family we find ourselves in. Uh, but my hope is that at the end of this, uh, if you open your heart and have ears to hear what the Spirit might be saying to you, that God is actually going to help you grow a stronger family um, over the long term, and maybe even tomorrow as well. So let's go ahead and, uh, and pray before we read the scripture and get into it this morning. Lord, I just thank you so much for this chance to gather, so much uh, for these people who are gathered here. We are um, your people, and we, we want to hear from your word. May we have hearts that are open and minds that are ready to hear, and Lord, uh, would, would you speak? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 15, 11 through 24. If you brought your Bible, that is awesome. Uh, I'm reading out of the NIV. We are also getting Bibles here in the bottom of every seat very soon, so I'm excited that that will happen. Uh, but uh, probably, are they going to be on the screen? Okay, great. We've solved that one. My, the words are going to be on the screen and you can follow along. This is Luke 15, verses 11 through uh, something. And I will, uh, uh, you guys can follow along on the screen. Here it is. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the breast robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So this is a parable of Jesus, and one that hardly needs an introduction. Whether or not you've been in church all your life, or today is your very first time, uh, I imagine that you have heard or have heard of this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, because this is maybe one of the best-known scriptures in the entire Bible. And that's because this parable is a scripture that really captures uh, a lot of the heart of, of the gospel, of the hope that we have in Jesus, of the forgiveness <laughs> and grace that is offered in, uh, in, in the cross. And so this is a story that, that, that we know and we look back to often, but it's not often a story that we come to with the lens of parents or family. And it actually speaks a lot to those categories. The parable begins with a father who is approached by his son with a request. And let's be clear, it is a ridiculous request. Can I have my share of the estate now? Can you give me my inheritance early? This is a ridiculous request. And you know, it reminds me, uh, earlier this week, my oldest, Jesse, came to me after um, being delinquent, in kind words. Uh, for the last five minutes, he had been lying about why his two brothers were crying. Uh, he was involved, but he was denying his own culpability. And when he finally realized that his story didn't add up, he said, okay, I did it. Can I still have dessert? Right? It was a ridiculous request. I wanted to strangle my son a little bit with that request. But when this, this son in this parable comes to this father and asks for his inheritance early, I, I want you to know that the force of this is that the, the father wants to strangle his son a lot, a bit. Because this isn't just ridiculous. It is shameful. It's hurtful. It's about the meanest thing that a son could have said to his father, because here's what he's really just said. He said, Dad, I am more interested in the money I am going to get from you than the relationship that I have with you. I want your money more than I want you. And so what he's saying is, Dad, let's pretend that you're not alive anymore, and you give me the money, and I'm going to go live off on my own. I mean, this is a horrible, awful, shameful thing, and this is probably one of the lowest moments in, in this father's life. And it leads me, really, to, to simply point out the first thing with this lens of parenting that, that I want to point out that's here in the scripture, and it's this. Sometimes kids are absolutely horrible, and being parents is really hard. <laughs> Can I get an amen, right? <laughs> Sometimes parent, parenting is hard because our kids can be so darn challenging, and it's true, and sometimes we need to just say it. We need to acknowledge it, that this, this is really, really hard. Sometimes it's helpful, even as a parent, to say, I am not happy 
with my kids right now. I don't like my kids very much right now. I have zero warm, fuzzy feelings towards my children. And, and, and it's almost therapeutic, it's almost necessary for us sometimes to voice that, that, that we're feeling. Uh, because it, it's true, as much as we experience joy and tremendous blessing, as much as being entrusted with a life is a privilege, it's also really, 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 really challenging sometimes. And, uh, and it, it's okay to say that. And, and it seems like sometimes kids just know how to make it worse. Like, we want to strangle them. I ran across that article on Facebook I want to share just a little bit with you. I know that some of you saw this too, but it was titled, A Children's Guide to Being a Jerk, from the Diary of Sue, her mom. And I guess the lady who wrote it, her name is Sue. And uh, just a, a little disclaimer, if you go and look this up on the internet, it's not, jerk is not the word that is used. It's got dollar signs in it. And it expresses probably the full force of, of her emotional load that she was feeling with her kids in these moments where she was very frustrated with them. And she's expressing how sometimes kids have this ability to not only make you upset, but know how to make it, it's like it's intentional. Like they're plotting your destruction. And so what she does is she writes this as a guide to being a, a jerk. So she says, if you want to be a jerk, number one, do not do anything unless mom is screaming at you. Instructions given in the inside voice aren't serious, right? So listen up right now! <laughs> I live in that world a little bit sometimes. Two, always strike back physically, i.e. Kick, kicking, punching, hitting, and or biting when antagonized by a sibling. This way, mom's blood pressure skyrockets and she has no idea who to punish because she doesn't care who started it and she's too busy looking for a corkscrew. <laughs> Number three, never ever put anything back after you've used it. Just get up and casually walk away. Glue, Play-Doh, glitter, Legos, 400 crayons, dirty dishes, used tissues. Eventually mom will get so tired of looking at it, she'll do it herself. Hakuna Matata. Number four, <laughs> on Sunday mornings, make mom drag you out of bed weekend and burning style. <laughs> on the weekends, blast the soundtrack to Moana as loudly as possible before the sun comes up. Then once mom is awake and sufficiently angry, demand breakfast immediately because otherwise you'll surely die of starvation. Number five, cry about taking a shower every single night like it's your job. Act as though the bath were actually hot lava coming out of the faucet. <laughs> so true if you've ever had a kid like that. Number six, always consider your options when given a punishment ultimatum. Sometimes not complying is worth, not, is worth losing that toy you don't really care that much about because let's face it, you have too much crap anyways. <laughs> Number seven, do not under any circumstance eat the meal that's put in front of you especially if it's the same meal everyone else is eating. Pretend it's poison. Demand special dietary accommodations like your Mariah Carey. <laughs> Number eight, beg your parents to sign you up for ex expensive extracurricular activities across town. Then after two practices, make them beg you to go to said activities every week. Also make sure to misplace at least one of the shoes required for wearing at this activity precisely one minute before it's time to get in the car. Okay, you guys get the point. There's actually a lot more. Um, 
but I, I enjoyed that. I know you guys probably do if you've, if you've lived in that world, but it's just a way to recognize and to acknowledge, and in, in actually a, a, a real way, a healthy way, to kind of get off some of the challenge and stress of family life. But, but now that we have acknowledged that reality, let me, let me say why I think this is true, why parenting can be really hard, and from a biblical perspective. And, and what comes to mind here is a verse from the book of Romans that is also well-known, uh, Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes your children. So children can be terrible sometimes for the exact same reason that you can be terrible sometimes. <laughs> like all human beings, children have hearts that are a little bit broken, that there's goodness in the image of God in us, but there's also a sinful nature, a turning away from God, from what we ought to do. And so children, like adults, make bad decisions. And so when that happens, when that sinful nature wins out in them, what that means is sometimes we as parents have to work them through it, and sometimes we as parents bear the brunt of it. And that's just part of being a parent. They, kids don't listen, sometimes they lie, sometimes they tell us they hate us, and that's often when we are being really excellent parents. Sometimes it's because we are being really excellent parents. And so what that means is in these horrible moments, what we have to do is, is have a different kind of perspective. And this is where I think the scripture is really helpful. Again, if you read the parable closely, one of the things that you'll notice is that there's actually a gap in certain parts of the narrative. There's a, there's a really important gap early in the narrative. A hole in the story where you're like, I wonder if something else went on. When the son comes to the father right at the beginning and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. The very next thing that we read is so his father divided the property between them. Think about that for a minute. For a minute, the son makes this horrible, disrespectful request, and then the father just immediately goes ahead and, and does it. He divides up the estate, he gives him the money, and goes like that's not how this actually plays out in real time. There's a whole. Jesus has not given us the part of the story that happens there. Like just thinking about this practically. For the dad to divide up the estate, that takes time. He's got to think through how that's going to work out. And then he's got to liquefy his assets to give them to the son to then go live off in a foreign country, right? And then, and then that's not even the most important part. Think about this process that the dad has to go through emotionally to deal with what, what, what happened with the son. First, the dad has to hear his son's request. Then the dad has to grieve his son's request. Then he probably has to get really angry about his son's request. And then he eventually has to come to terms with his son's request. Right? But we don't see any of those details in, in this passage. The parable just moves from one scene to the next. But, but I think when you look at it with this lens, we ought to read between the lines here. Because here's what I do see explicitly in, in the passage. And, 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 and I'll explain it later, but in order for this father to get past this moment where his son does probably the, the meanest, worst thing that could have ever happened to him, I think the father is able to do it because he's able to think beyond the moment. I, I think the father is able to take a long-term perspective on his relationship with his son. 
I think he gets to the point where he has the hope that whatever was going on in their relationship and whatever was going on in the sun at that moment was not going to be the future reality of their relationship. And so he holds this hope that now will not be forever. It would get better, and so he's able to allow himself to get hurt and give the son what he wants and let his son probably walk away. One of the hardest moments possible, but it's a long-term perspective that enables him to do that. And that's what I think is, it would, would be there in the whole and the narrative here. And, and this is also what I see in the scripture itself. Verse 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, when the son comes to his senses and realizes that his life would be better at home, that his dad loves him still, he comes home. And when he is a long way off, the son is coming home. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him, and, and kissed him. So, so, so what does that tell us about the dad? He is seeing his son long before he even gets home. He is, his heart is filled with compassion. He's gone through this emotional process, and now he's been waiting, hoping, desiring for this day to happen. And, and what Jesus wants us to see is all this time, dad's had this hope. He's had this long-term perspective, because when he welcomes him back, he sees him over the horizon coming, he runs out to him, and then there's even like, it, it appears this premeditation about what dad was going to do when the son comes home. Get him sandals, put on a signet ring, uh, let's put a cloak on him, let's kill the fattened calf, we're going to throw a party. He was thinking all this time about this moment, and that's because I think the father understood something that we all really need to understand is this. Parenting is a long game. This is the practical thing that we have got to remember in family. Parenting is a long game. It's an activity that begins when, honestly, that child is first conceived, when you get the news that there's going to be a baby, and then we wrap our minds around the reality that, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a mom or dad, I'm going to name this thing, and it's going to live in my house, right? Like, like that's when parenting be begins, and then we reorient our life through every age and stage of being a parent thereafter. We self-sacrificially give to these lives that have been entrusted to us through those best days that, like, are pictures that we want to put on the wall, and through all of the other days that aren't so wonderful, when we want to lock the kids in their own room, or when they get older and they're teenagers and we want to put bars on their windows, or when they leave home and forget about us until that moment when, when they come to their senses like I did, like a lot of us don't realize our parents really are incredible, wonderful people who gave to us all their darn lives and really do love us more than anything else in the world, right? But, but, but the parents hold that understanding and live through that all the way through. Parents aim to shape a child's heart, not overnight, but night after night after night after year, until the long game changes and, and we're able to, to, to see that child's heart shepherded in the way that helps that child be all that God has called it to be. And we're able to endure the hardest moments because we know that all not, not all moments are going to be like this. And that there's a long-term plan here that I get to be a part of. One other thing, and just a little bit of practical advice 
from my own experience as a dad, and I, I bet uh, a lot of y'all relate to this. Sometimes in those moments, like, where the kid has lost it in the grocery store and is throwing a tantrum on the ground, right? Like, it's hard to remember the parenting of a long game, right? You know, like, you still got to deal with the reality of that moment. And, and what I have, one of the things that I have learned through many failures is, is that when you're in that moment, you've actually got to step out of that moment. You've got to get yourself away from it. I remember when I probably realized this on the fourth kid for the first time. But, um, but they, Jordan, our youngest, had just been born. And uh, Shannon, my wife, was off at the grocery store or something. And so it was me and four kids. And Jordan was a little baby girl asleep, maybe six months. And all three boys were at home. And they were being punks. They were not listening to me. They were fighting. And, uh, and over the course of like the next 20 seconds, Suddenly, like, all three of them went off like alarms, just yelling, screaming, like, yelling, Daddy, 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 and what happened when you think these three boys yell? They woke up their sister, and I was already upset at them. And so, here, all four of my kids screaming at the top of their lungs, and then the three boys, Dad, Dad, Dad! It's like pounding on my head, right? And I was overwhelmed. And so, what did Dad do in that moment? Dad... Uh, walked over to the kitchen cabinet, got out a glass, filled it up with water, sat down on his favorite chair, and took a drink, you know, and sat there for the next two or three minutes. And then, and then after, at the end of that, like, I started just with this maniacal laugh. Like, I don't even know where it came from. Like, if you were in that room, you would have thought I just cracked and I lost it. And this was about to be the shining, right? You know? And, uh, and, and so there, there I was. But, but what I, I, I felt horrible in that moment because then I went upstairs and dealt with the boys and then got sister and calmed her down. But I, I felt like I was being a bad parent, actually, in that moment. But what I realized later is that was maybe one of the smartest things I ever could have done. I just stumbled into success there as a parent. But I was already angry at those kids. I would have run upstairs and been not such a good daddy, which I have done before. And, and so sitting down and collecting myself and laughing like I'm Jack Nicholson <laughs> maybe, maybe was the best thing that I ever could have done. When you're in the moment, you've got to get out of the moment. Your kids are going to survive pretty much every time. So take those moments so you can too. And, and beyond that moment, let me just tell you one other thing I think many of us know. It's worth saying again. Get some friends around you to be a part of the journey of parenting, of, of growing a family. One of the things that the Bible tells us that the evil one that Satan tries to do in our lives is to isolate us. Do not allow yourself to be isolated through that journey. It's one of the things that we care about through all of life's challenges here Get uh, some friends that can walk along with you part of this. Be a part of a growth group where people can ask and think about some of the challenges and work through whatever they are and whatever kind of things you're dealing with in your life. And let me say, specifically on this one, this fall we started a, a MOPS group. There's a lot of people here. It's four mothers of preschool kids to provide Christian support for one another. This is exactly the kind of thing that people need and I would just say, it's awesome. Do not be isolated. Be a part of something like this. It, it, it will really, really help. Okay, here's the other thing that I want you to see in this parable. It's probably actually the most critical of all. But do you know that from uh, our 21st century, highly individualized American perspective, 
We actually tend to misplace the focus of this story, this parable said by Jesus. When, when we hear it, the person who we focus on is the son, because we tend to relate to the son. That's why this is called the parable of the prodigal son, because when we look at that son and we see his rebellion, we can relate to our own rebellion in our lives, our walking away from God. And, and this is a beautiful, wonderful thing that is so much a part of this parable that he comes home and is fully received by his father and given the graces of forgiveness that God offers all of us. But <clears throat> it's actually not the son who's the central focus of this parable. And people who are culturally closer to this story realize that right away. It's actually not the son's behavior that is most prodigal, which means like extravagant or crazy. It's actually the behavior of the father. The father is, uh, is the one who's prodigal, and this is a story about the, the father's love. Uh, it's interesting, I was speaking to a um, Christian leader who, who lives and is a pastor in, in Jordan, in the country of Jordan. And uh, this is a country in the Middle East where people are a lot closer to this parable um, culturally. And he was telling me that to this day, uh, there are a lot of folks who just can't wrap their minds around this story. They think it's unbelievable, and here's why. They cannot imagine that a father would ever act like this. And they just struggle to believe it, because what the father ought to do from their perspective when his son comes to him and says, give me my inheritance early, is, is, is something to regain the honor in the way that his son has just shamed him. Right? He has to publicly disown his son. He, in some of their minds, ought to be beaten as a son. This happens in the Middle East today. And, and what they for sure struggle with is to think that after he asked for it, that the, the father would actually do it. While he's still alive, split up his estate, give the money to his son, and then let him go off. Like, this is unthinkable in their minds. And then, and then, when the son comes back, finally realizing what an error he's made, to, to, to run out there, and there are other little cultural things that I don't have time to get into that the father does, like lift, like um, with the ring and the cloak, where it's just all indicators of full and complete forgiveness and acceptance. It's just too much for, for a lot of Middle Eastern hearers when, when they hear this story. But, 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 but here's the thing, for, for people who actually are able to hear it, he said he said, what they do is, is they're able to see not a son that emerges, but a God whose love is almost unbelievable, but that's absolutely and completely real. He is prodigal in the way that he loves. This is a story about a God whose love is unconditional. And that's why in the Middle East, for people who believe it, they don't call this the story of the prodigal son. They call this the parable of the father's love. It's got a whole different name, right? And, and what it is, it's a story of the unconditional love that God has for all of us. And here's where this is really relevant to families. Uh, it's, it's really simple. That love that God gives us, the unconditional love that, that Jesus said God gives us as he paints this story of a father who shows unconditional love for his son. This is the same love that we have to give our families, especially our kids. We received unconditional love. We have to give unconditional love to our children. We need, they need us to give them unconditional love. 
That same love that we have received, we give it to our kids. And doesn't that make so much sense when, when you step back and, and you think about it? And, and, and let me tell you, I think that there is no greater gift that you could give your family, your children, than unconditional love. Be, because it will anchor them and lay a foundation in their lives that is better than any other. And, uh, and it will also help them see through you the heart of the gospel. That there is a God who loves them in the same unconditional way that my parents love me. That's why it's so encouraging to see the kids already starting to get this. Because this is, this is the thing that we have to get get them to understand through every age and stage of life. In the deepest part of who they are, they need to know that despite their failures, despite their mistakes, despite the sin that they choose, the wrong things they willingly choose because they're angry or want to be rebellious, they will still be loved by us and God will still love them. And that is an anchor in their lives that's unlike any other. Let, let me just uh, let, let me just tell you how sometimes it's helped me to think about this. It's kind of like when, when, when you give this to your kids, it's kind of like you, you tie a rope around their ankle that just kind of goes with them throughout the rest of their life. Unconditional life is like a rope that we tie around their ankle. Maybe some of us at certain ages and stages of our kids' life would rather than have a GPS device on them or a shock collar, right? But, um, but this, is, this is like a rope, and, and it's there, like they feel it, but you can forget about it. They can go through life with it, and, um, and, and what it does, and they may not understand this at the time, but when they have this rope, it's, it's a lifeline. It frees them to figure out how to be human. Like to go off and to do things and to fail and to make mistakes because they know that they're always going to be held and loved by you. And, and, and there will be times in their life where they want to take it off, but, but you can't take this rope off. Once you get it, give it to your kids. It's tied there forever, whether or not they want it or not. And so when they try to abandon you, when they walk off and make decisions that are harmful and they know it and you know it, when they do things that, that really hurt themselves and others, that rope is still there. And what will happen is that one moment when they realize how bad they've messed up, they're going to they're gonna feel the tug of that rope again and follow it right back to you. And that's what we see happen in this story, this parable of the prodigal son. Right? There's that moment when everything's gone wrong for the son, when he's so messed up, and, and he says, I have sinned against heaven and my father. And then what does he say? He says, I will set out and go back to my father, right? He, he follows the rope home. God's love was there always in his heart, despite his mistakes. He knew he would still be loved. And when we give that to our kids, it holds them, it's foundational. It gets into the core of their psyche. And, and, and they always know they can come back to us because they know we love them no matter what. Right, so here's your homework. You got homework, all right? Uh, those that are in here, your parents, Kids, your parents have homework too. But you know, here's what I'm going to ask you to do if you're a kid. I want you to put your hands over your ears for a minute. It's secret homework, okay? All right? For real. I'm going to ask you later. Then I'm still going to love you if you cheat. But here's, here's the deal. Uh, parents, I want you to tell your kids that you love them no matter what. I want you to verbally tell them that no matter what, there is nothing that they can do 
that will make you stop loving them. I know that's going to be really hard for some of us, especially some dads, you know, but I, I just really want to encourage you to do this. Like, after they royally messed up, right? A teenager messed up big time, right? Sit them down and say, you're going to have some major punishments here. You messed up. There's going to be consequences. But guess what? Like, I still love you, and there's nothing you can do to change that. If you've got little ones at home, like, uh, after they get a timeout, after they do something wrong, sit them down on your lap and say, you know you messed up. What did you do wrong? That's right. Don't do it again. But guess what? There's nothing you can do that's ever, ever going to make me stop loving you. When they get to high school and they have made you so angry, you want to ground them for the rest of the year, right? You know, and, and your flaring anger, sit down with them and say, you're grounded for the rest of the year, right? <laughs> but, but then say, but guess what? I still love you. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And if it's awkward and they say, I know mom and dad, stop, please quit saying it, know that you're on the right track. Because they've finally gotten it, right? And, and, and we just need to reinforce that through every age and stage of life. And when you give your kids this gift, you're going to give them the gift of unconditional love that God gives us. And you're going to turn their hearts back to their, to their heavenly Father, who's the one that's going to love them more than you ever could, right? So let's remember that today. Would you, would you guys pray with me? And kids, you can pull your arms off if you're not already there, right? Okay, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this, this story uh, that, that you, you told us that is so meaningful on so many levels. Lord. And God, as we come before you wanting to do the very best job we can, with this great privilege of being part of a family, would you help us to, 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 to show unconditional love by who we are? Would you give us the strength and the courage to say it, Lord? And would it be the anchor in our families that everything else would build up of and flourish? And, and we pray that um, we would see your blessing all over this. Uh, in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.